2: Welcome to MindShifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, June 23rd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most productive, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at o r g If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, why is this happening to me again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to Great Effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also go to your, uh, download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your App Store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the reality management worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Drag-On Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope... People do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials, and if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581 you call that number and press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we can have a conversation. And we appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service. And if you would let us know how we can be of service to you, we would appreciate it. It makes it far easier to live into that intention. I should also mention that there is a a website, MindShiftersAcademy.org. And that's another resource for some highlight shows and um, an abbreviated forgiveness process and forgiveness patter and a process for grief and loss and the archives of the shows from last year where we were going through the way of mastery with commentary and information about how to tap into the, the two different MindShifter support groups we run absolutely free on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So, we encourage people to go check that out. Click the links, explore a bit. Check back in with whyagain.org, Michael and Jeannie's website that has thousands of pages of resources, and when you find something of value with it, share it with friends and family. Um, As we were talking about just the other day on this show, that it's perfectly uh, useful and valuable to share things with friends and family, and they have their own choice once you share it whether they pursue it we had a support group last night and we had four people plus me and we did a another bit of a deep dive into the the work by Michael Singer he did an 11 hour lecture series Taking a deep dive into his book, um, *The Untethered Soul*, and we just listened to another hour or so of that, and then had a discussion. So, if that seems of interest to you, or you know somebody that might be of interest or might be interested in that kind of a thing, please pass that information along. And we have plenty of time today for comments, questions, answers, testimonials, 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1, and we can have a conversation. What's on your mind? How can we support you? We've been reading from the book, A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg and some aspect of it at different points has brought me back several times to the mirror theory. And one of the one of the things we were reading yesterday and the day before Is the idea of choosing to do what your heart or your insight, intuition, your gut feeling tells you is the right thing to do, even when it would seem to come at great cost to you. And now I want to present something from the mirror theory that Offers a balance to that, so there's there's the idea that in the essay that I was reading from A Walk in the Physical, I've I've had a couple of people make the comment that it sounds like the book or the Walk in the Physical or my talk about it is telling us that we need to sacrifice ourselves rather than have a balance. We need to do whatever we think is right, even though it costs us dearly. And one of those um Essays was the essay titled Loving Intent Transcends All Axes and in that essay it talks about how we grow in two ways. We grow strong in being able to perform in any given direction so we can be patient and we can be demanding when it's necessary. We can be firm and we can be soft. We can be um able to stand up for what we know is right, and we can be able to let go of the need to be right. So that's one way. We, we grow in the ability to do whatever the situation and the context of the situation might call for to serve the highest and best for ourselves and others. And then the second way we grow is that we refine our ability to best discern which choice or which direction on a dimension or which force we should apply in one situation or the next. And it says that we grow in that wisdom as we learn from our experiences and we repeatedly live the results of our own intentions We especially develop, or experientially, we develop discernment that is not obscured by the ego, not colored by the ego. We develop clarity of awareness when appraising both external and internal environments so that we can appropriately identify and acknowledge what will best serve the totality of life in each moment. And we grow in our ability to make the best choice For the betterment of others, and we refine our ability to identify and select that choice what's best for the totality of life and others and the whole W-H-O-L-E, even when the circumstances are complex and even when the personal costs may be great. And we've come back to that a couple times, and I've talked about it and given some examples of times when I followed my gut when it was difficult, et cetera. And but I've had a couple of people talk about how, well, wait a minute, so you're saying to me I, I should just do what's best for anybody else even when it is painful to me. And so here's a here's a, a chapter from the um the book The Mirror Theory that's kind of a balancing agent to that. The title of the book, the premise of this book is that it's a teacher who came to Betsy. The teacher's name is Charlie. And the teacher came to Betsy and said, look, Jesus' life was instructional. He was a person. He lived in a family. He had brothers and sisters, mom and dad, cousins, grandmothers, etc. And he he learned and grew because he had teachers that taught him that everything in life is a reflection to you of what you need to learn, of where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are, etc. So this chapter by chapter, it talks about Jesus in a relationship to these different people in his life. And if you put it aside and you don't get hung up on whether or not it's a true story and Jesus actually had biological siblings or whatever, and just talk about the dynamics, that's why I present something like this. I'm not here to say what's right or wrong i'm here to present a different opinion and chapter six in this book is titled mariah the reflective sister and there's a little quote at the beginning of each chapter and this one says every detail is meaningful and every detail symbolizes how you're living your life Some of us might have heard this in sales trainings or management trainings and motivational speakers that say, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Same concept. So Betsy asks the question, was Mariah the sister that was closest to Jesus in age? And Charlie says, yes, she was. Her name was Mary, named after her mother. And for clarity, I'm calling her Mariah. And Betsy asks, so was she close to Jesus emotionally? Charlie says, well, they got along well. He symbolized all that she admired in a man. He had an approachable demeanor. He had a lack of arrogance and a willingness to look for the good in others. And in that respect, Mariah had her mirror. Betsy asks, Is that what you mean by details being symbolic? Charlie says, sure. She had details reflecting the kind of person she was, even in things concerning matter. Her home told her about her leisure habits. Her food told her about her eating habits. Her clothes told her about her dressing habits. And her emotional habits reflected details as well. Life fluctuates as different priorities inspire different details. Betsy says, Some things never change, Charlie. For instance, I go to the market and I buy the same food over and over. Charlie says, Well, the need for nourishment is constant. The food you buy is not. Betsy says, Well, but the food I buy always looks the same. Charlie says, Well, you might look the same on the outside as well, but inside, you are the feelings you put there. Betsy asks, Was Mariah interested in food? Charlie says, Yes, very much so. Her mother, Mary, was a magnificent cook and urged her to use her recipes and expand on them through her own creativity. Mariah did that, and her skills accelerated. After she married she used her gift to nourish her family. As her skills improved and the food became delectable, friends dropped by to enjoy the feasts. At first, Mariah thought, how wonderful, my skills are being appreciated. Happy anticipation quickly turned into the dread of drudgery as twice the amount of shopping, twice the amount of spending, and twice the amount of cleanup turned her into a shrew. Uncomfortable, she cooked stew over and over to reflect her mood, and when that didn't help, she hinted for the guests to help her out now and then, and a few of them did. The prevailing mood, however, was that Mariah had a talent to share whether she wanted to or not. Unconcerned for her comfort, people showed up at all hours of the day and evening, forcing her to drop whatever she was doing to accommodate their enthusiasm. It was very annoying. Mariah wanted to share, but she didn't want to sacrifice her peace of mind in the process. When the problem escalated, she turned to Jesus, hoping he'd have a solution. He had several. He said, serve at certain hours, encourage mutual gifts of nourishment, and never overextend yourself. Well, Mariah liked his advice, and so she told the worst offenders what he suggested. But would you believe it? They all thought she was kidding, especially her brother's. Besides, not wanting to hear any proposal that could end their eating pleasures, they weren't convinced that she was serious. When Maria told Jesus that his ideas hadn't worked, he said, how do you know? You didn't use them. He said, words and good intentions would only bring her more of the same. To see some action, she would have to take some action. Well, so she meant to and she tried it, but the very first time she tried to follow through, she got confronted, and then she lost her nerve and she reverted back to habit. As her joy and her gift of cooking and love of food diminished, the power to bring it back disappeared. Mariah hoped that treating people to meal after meal would be seen as a loving gesture, but God saw it as the feeling she brought to the process. To infuse more love, she had to stop feeding the stragglers and turn away the users. Jesus used an analogy to try and help her understand her predicament. Jesus said, If our grocer is not compensated for his goods, is that a loving situation? Moriah said, Well, no. But he's in the business and Jesus said so what his gift is that of being a grocer yours is that of a cook why would the universe see them differently action reaction is an emotional force just because the grocer's gift has a specific meaning in our particular culture doesn't change the nature of action-reaction You act and you are acted upon. Put some action behind your intentions and those who want to receive will start to give. Those who don't will understand the terms and act accordingly. As it turns out, not everyone was as gracious with Mariah as she lived this growth. However, the behavior of others was not the challenge. Her behavior was. Jesus did say, however, that good intentions counted for something because her heart would open to the good intention of others. Betsy asked, Those who left still cared about Mariah, didn't they? Charlie said, They did, they did care, and caring was lovely, but it didn't buy the food or set the table or cleaned the dishes. Betsy asked, but didn't Mariah want her friends to enjoy the food? And Charlie said, she did, but their enjoyment hadn't gotten her what she needed. She kept thinking, how can I be so cruel as to turn these people away from the food that means so much to them? And then she didn't want to be selfish. She wanted to be kind. But first, she had to learn the true nature of kindness. She thought kindness meant giving her friends what they loved in the picture, when in truth it meant showing them someone who loved herself. When she put this premise to work, life improved immediately. Nothing good ever resulted from denying herself the pleasure of a hard-earned reward. She had to respect her place in the circle of human support. For instance, had Mary said to Mariah, here is the stove, here is a pot, here is the food, now go cook. Would that be a loving gesture? Well, God is no less loving than she is. Wholeness is not found from living in frustrated, angry feelings. Wholeness is found from keeping your emotions full and always appreciative. Happily, once Mariah honored her gift, others were ready to honor it too. Betsy asks, How can I trust this premise, Charlie? Charlie responds, why do you respect Jesus so much? Betsy says, because he loves so easily. Charlie says, how do you think he got to the point where he could? Betsy said, well, he got there by being selfless. Charlie said, he tried being selfless. Not only did he make himself miserable, he made everyone around him miserable as well. When he tried being selfish, his mood, when he tried being respectful of himself, his mood improved immediately. He met resistance, though, just as Mariah did. Plenty of associates preferred the sacrificing Jesus. Nevertheless, he pursued his dreams regardless of who opposed him, whether it was his parents or his siblings, his cousins, his religion, or his friends. Each time he gave in to the role of martyr, martyr, depression set in. The Jesus who lived in selflessness was not an appealing persona. People avoided him at all costs whenever he sank into it. The denial was so unpleasant because it pushed him to believe that someone other than himself was responsible for his happiness. Betsy asked, So did Mariah think of Jesus as an intense person? Charlie said, Well, she thought of him as a deep-feeling soul. His downward-spiraling moods were every bit as intense as his upward-spiraling ones. Jesus struggled as much as anyone to know the God within. He always made an effort to be a good person, but his idea of good evolved. As it did, he went through radical changes. Some of them brought harsh reactions from others. That doesn't mean he didn't have love in his heart. He did, even in denial. How could a soul be without love? Love is all there is but the mind can choose to ignore it. Jesus gave what he understood at every level of awareness. The more he pleased himself, the more of himself he had to share with others. He found his answers from living what didn't work, figuring out why, and choosing differently. Mariah finally realized that to enjoy her gift, she had to enjoy the gifts of others. To make sure she did, she asked her guests to bring a gift of their own. In fact, she forced them to come up with one by saying, either find a way to contribute or leave. Confronting though it was, it was a lot less painful than martyrdom. When Mariah first started sharing the meals, she told her guests how to reciprocate. Then they told her how to cook. Enough of that, she thought. And she stopped with all the prattle as she encouraged participation the game of mutual support gradually took on such proportions that a food cooperative evolved as her heart took up the challenge and the interest of others grew so did her menu of excellent cuisine success didn't come from being selfless however it came from remembering that everyone is looking for fulfillment therefore Anyone living it is an immediate magnet. It doesn't matter how a person contributes. God doesn't separate gifts into categories. For example, the gift of tailoring, the gift of carpentry, the gift of cuisine. God sees every part of the whole as having a mutually supportive gift. Even a few kind words can qualify but the feeling is what creates, not the words. Principles have to work everywhere energy exists, even where words are not. Otherwise, the principles are useless to the whole. So Betsy asks, well, what alternatives could Mariah have tried in her struggle to self-respect? Charlie says, well, she could have let others eat her out of house and home, and become a martyr. She could have barred outsiders and become a recluse. She could have demanded money for the hiring of a maid and the buying of food and become a tyrant. These alternatives had no appeal to her. Betsy asks, couldn't she have trusted that whatever she gave would come back? Charlie says, that is what happened action reaction and that process of action reaction prevailed whether she trusted physics or not the universe honors every expression as worthy even if only to demonstrate the nature of discontent and that is what happened to mariah she lived in martyrdom and the gift of martyrdom returned betsy says Martyrdom is not a gift, Charlie. Charlie responds, The universe doesn't judge your offering, Betsy. It assumes you want whatever you give. That's why it behooves you to know exactly what you are giving. Betsy says, There's something missing here. God gives unconditionally. If we want to be this force, we have to do the same. Charlie responds, God gives unconditionally whatever is given. Therefore, frustration, confusion, and denial came back to her with no conditions whatsoever. The pure heart of God is not a selfless energy. It is an energy that knows the love of the whole, and it works to keep it around. Betsy asks, what about nuns who spend their life in prayer? charlie said if a nun is happy praying her gift is wonderfully welcome if she's not happy no gift has been given betsy asks didn't jesus live for others toward the end of his life charlie responds no he lived for the fun he could find in what he was doing at the end of his life he had no need of worldly support Unearthly support was sustaining him completely. He reached that level of contentment the same way you will reach yours, by realizing where contentment lives and making sure you have it. Betsy asks, What cured Jesus of his confusion? Charlie wrote, His misery whenever he was sidetracked, Betsy stated. His story sounds like Mariah's. Charlie says, all stories have the same soundtrack when it comes to living in comfort. Jesus found happiness from creating his own. As soon as he knew where it was, others wanted to know how he had found it. The same was true for Mariah. When Jesus left Jerusalem, all of a sudden he had to support himself away from the craft of carpentry. Not that he didn't fall back on it once in a while, he did, but to journey the way he wanted to, he had to be free and move on quickly. That didn't tie in well with carpentry. So after careful deliberation, he told his new acquaintances that he would be speaking at a certain place at a certain time, and anyone wanting to attend could bring a donation. Plenty of people arrived, but hardly anyone donated. Jesus wasn't sure how worthy his gift was at, at that point in time, so others weren't sure either. At first he was embarrassed, but turning back was not an option. He had to find a way to support his trip. He couldn't succeed until he understood the nature of success. At first, he thought it was the picture of others behaving as he hoped they would. Eventually, he realized it was the picture of his behaving as he hoped others would. To solve his dilemma, he put a price on his wisdom, and then he found all those who were doing the same. Since they were happy to be paid for their wisdom, they were happy to pay Jesus for his. After solitude, his needs changed, though his policies did too. He still had a price to pay, but it was an emotional one, since that's where he knew his reward had meaning. Jesus left the world of mutual support when he entered the world of autonomy. He did so by understanding what it meant to be a valuable part of the whole right here on earth he kept his emotions one with god and received whatever he needed wherever he was eventually knew that his body was illusion so he fed the part of himself that he knew was real oneness is not a worldly thing it is a feeling emotion kept him nourished to the point where it could He had to seed that love from within. When he did that, he needed the willingness to do so on a moment-to-moment basis. Betsy asked, How would you differentiate our world today from the world he lived in? Charlie replied, The picture looks very different. But emotionally, similar growth is happening. Mariah's challenge involved the concept of commerce, and surprisingly, she had an edge over her brothers in this respect, especially James and Simon, not because of any lesser ambitions in them, but because of lesser expectations that were put upon her. If a woman did well outside the home, it was unusual. If she didn't, who cared? She wasn't expected to anyway. Her brothers, on the other hand, saw success as the natural way of things, an extension of who they were as men. If they did poorly, problems abounded. She succeeded where they did not, but nothing in her youth had prepared her for such an occurrence. She didn't know how to respect her talent. She didn't know how to make it work for her in a positive way. She didn't know how to handle resentment from otherwise loving friends and family. Jesus had little interest in worldly achievement, so he became a natural buffer and a confidant, someone who could offer advice with no personal agenda. He came to terms with his gift and knew where from it originated. To help her cope, he reminded her that happiness didn't come from the number of people that were impressed with her gift. It came from the number of ways she could honor her gift. I've skipped right by some of these that I've underlined, but that's one I I just can't skip by. Happiness doesn't come from the number of people who are impressed with your gift. Happiness comes from the number of ways you honor your gifts. The last part of the book says, For a while, Mariah thought it was nice to be free of all the jealousies of her siblings. Later, she realized that freedom was just as personally defined as everything else, and she had her own way back to it, just as they had theirs. Mariah also had her moments of wanting Jesus to change. The government was declaring war on him, and he didn't seem to care. He didn't care, regardless of how Mariah felt, because Jesus knew what he needed, and nothing she said could change his mind. She didn't think he was loving her the way she wanted him to. But his way of caring eventually taught her more about love than her choice would have taught her. She gained a better sense of her own wisdom as she witnessed what happened to Jesus from trusting his wisdom. Betsy made the statement, From the perspective of others, it seems that Jesus' last few days were not very pleasant. Charlie said, maybe that was the point of it all, to demonstrate that happiness doesn't come from what others give to you or believe about you or say is true. Happiness comes from what you give to yourself, what you believe is true, and what you say is yours. The closing quote in this chapter says, respect your own emotional barometer. Otherwise, you will forever be adjusting it to suit the whims of others. So, I present that chapter as a balance to those who heard me talking about doing what's right, even at great personal cost. And they were somehow led to believe that I was suggesting that you are always living to your own detriment by giving everything to others. And I hope it's a little bit more clear now that nothing could be further from the truth. Everything works in this law of resonance and give and take and energy flow. And if all I ever do is give, 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 and I don't receive anything of like kind or sustaining nature in response, it's not going to go well. I'm not going to enjoy my life. People aren't going to enjoy being around me, etc., etc. So our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. What's on your mind? How can we support you today? I will be happy to go back and continue reading, but I thought there's plenty that's been offered that might have sparked comments or questions in someone. look at the clock. It says we've got about 19 or 20 minutes left. 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. 541, probably, Celinda.
0: Yes, it is. It is I. Thank you, sir. Um, Was that from the mirror theory, that chapter? Yes. Oh, good, because that was exactly what I needed to hear, having come from my spiritual upbringing, my religious background, um, I seem to see that jump out at me all the time, that image that we're supposed to self-sacrifice, but it was Jesus' sacrifice that was the important thing. So give, give, give until you have nothing more to give. So I appreciate that because I woke up this morning. Just one moment. Let me close the window. I woke up. Um, this morning, about five o'clock, in a full-blown self-attack of feeling valueless and worthless, and of zero merit, <laughs> and um, not knowing how to get out of that rabbit hole, other than uh, doing the forgiveness process, and um, and just waiting and asking to be shown. And this is what I was shown, so I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate it.
2: What is it that you were shown?
0: In the When you read the mirror theory about the balance and about the reaffirmation that unless I value myself, no one else can value me. And that I had bought a whole system of evaluations that were false because it was how I should be rather than who I was and what my gifts were it was always seen to be, always seemed to be from my point of view as I bought the program, that I was never enough. I was I could never do enough, be enough, think enough or whatever, the situation just fill in the blank with the blank check of never enough. And so I just really appreciate what you offered this morning because that, when you read Krishna Thunberg's work, that little niggling discontent seems to find its way in when he talks about serving the good of the whole. But he doesn't often reflect that the good of the whole includes the individual or I haven't gotten that far in the book yet. Well, you know, here's
2: the thing. I I didn't interrupt this, and and if this were a support group, I would have broken in, if I was reading The Way of Mastery, I would have broken in a number of times. But I pushed to read through it because I, I wanted to present it as a whole. But in this essay that that launched this from Christian Sundberg and the Walk in the Physical book, Essay 115. It says, Loving Intent Transcends All Axes. And it says, Our walk in the physical is a journey of experiential growth. And a fundamental part of that growth, according to Tom Campbell, one of Christian Sundberg's main mentors. A fundamental part of that growth is to grow our quality of intent. That is, evolving our deepest reason for doing anything, evolving it towards love and past fear. This movement does not occur on just one axis. We are multidimensional beings, and so our expansion towards love is also multidimensional. What does that mean? It means I can't just pick one thing and say, I'm going to be loving and take the example of Mariah in this story. I'm going to be loving, and so I'm just going to cook for everyone forever, no matter whether they help me clean up or whether they bring food or whether they pay it. I'm just going to do that because that's the loving thing to do. That's one-dimensional. That's not multidimensional. Yet, since we all remember in our, our experience, there's a universe of duality. We explore how best to respond to questions of spirituality or more morality, and we sometimes assume that we should be moving just in one direction, like the example I gave with Mariah. Oh, I'm good at... At this and and giving is a good thing so I'm just going to keep giving regardless of whether people respect it or not so this work in this essay is talking about we might for example ask should we always be peaceful or is it sometimes acceptable to harm others should we strive to exert will to accomplish things or should we relinquish effort and surrender Should we always give when another one has need, or should we cut them off if we feel it is best for them? We might even include, should we believe in the religious teachings or let them go? It's not an either-or. That's what he's trying to point at here. In all of these deliberations, the paramount question we should be asking ourselves is, why are we making the choice we're making in the moment? As we are truly motivated by the best interests of the other and the whole, we're part of the whole, right? This is not complete selflessness because you are part of the whole. So if it is no loving gift is ever truly given, if the giver is not respected in that process. I, I thought I would be reading that quote from the mirror theory when I read that, that that lesson, that chapter. I didn't read that quote, so it makes me think maybe that's in the way of mastery. I know I didn't make it up, but no loving gift is ever truly given if the giver isn't respected, honored in that process. This work, this essay is not talking about you be selfless, at all costs, it says in all of these deliberations, the paramount question, the most important question we should be asking ourselves is, why are we making the choice we're making? Are we motivated by the best interests of the other person and the whole? We're part of the whole, so ourselves and the others. Or have we somehow stepped into fear and we're motivated by fear and we're acting to try and protect ourselves? Or we're acting just to serve others at our own expense? And he goes on to say, as we genuinely explore that question, we find that even in love, different circumstances may demand different answers. Parents don't always, just because they love their children, always say yes to whatever the child wants. Employers, even if they care deeply about their employees, don't always say yes to every demand the employees may, might come up with because the employees may not be aware of factors that, that, that are in effect that make it so that if the employer gave the employees everything they want, the business would close and everybody would be out of a job. And then he talks about two ways that we grow. One way is that we grow in our ability to do both sides of every dynamic. Insist that something get done when it's needed and be patient stand up for what you know to be right, and give up the need to be right. Being gentle, being firm. Being strong, being yielding. The list goes on. Any dynamic that you experience, is these things don't truly exist in the dichotomy or the duality the on-off, black-white, all-or-none that we think of. And different situations, based on context and these rather difficult constraints that they talk about in this work, may require us to do something that's not easy to do, and in another context, it may seem not to be loving at all. But in this context, it's truly the loving thing to do. Right? So it says, so in this examples above, we learn to be peaceful even in the face of conflict. We learn how to be courageous and to intervene when necessary even in the face of danger. We learn how to strive and exert great effort, and we learn how to release control and surrender. We learn how to be selfless and give all that we can, even at the expense of self, and we learn to refuse to do that when it would cost us too dearly or not benefit the whole. Do you see the balance that's being offered? And then he says, as we do that and we grow in our ability to act in any given way that the immediate situation demands for the benefit of others and the whole, and again, we are part of the whole, as we do that, we learn from our experience and we grow in what they call wisdom. We learn from our experiences, and we repeatedly live the results of our own intentions. And so we experientially develop the discernment that is necessary to bypass the fear and to bypass the demands of the ego. Both these types of growth are precious to the spirit. The spirit seeks to mightily develop both these types of strengths and wisdom as it journeys through lifetimes both these types of growth contribute to the expansion of love love is not just on one axis it encompasses all axes it is all that is it's the energy of creation it's the energy of life so it moves in every direction and it shows up as everything says love encompasses many virtues peace and bravery will and release charity and discipline faith and self-reliance rest and service self-love and love for others confidence and humility prudence and sacrifice And many, many more. It's only our language and our conceptualization of these things that make them seem like opposites on a dimension. It's all just the flow of life and energy and growth. I hope that makes some sense.
0: Oh, it makes perfect sense. And it's a matter of it going deeper than the intellect it's the growth process of it going to my heart and then down to my cellular structure to where i actually am living it and that is um sometimes an arduous journey and sometimes not
2: well it it gets arduous when we resist it it gets easier and easier when we learn to go with the flow
0: it gets Maybe easier and easier
2: recognize. Well, and we when we recognize the fear energy that we create with our focus of thoughts, rather than you know the truth of life, which is all there is is life and love. All there is is expansion and growth. It's like what Michael Singer talks about in his work that it you know our our appreciation for the flow of life energy itself is all we need to work on developing we learn we, we need to learn to quit judging that life is right or wrong good or bad and creating all of these internal tensions and some and pains around what is just the flow of life you might remember having heard some of that last night in the support group oh yes I,
0: the Previous Michael Singer uh, offering, I, didn't, I couldn't get, wrap my head around it at all. He was talking really fast. But last night, I really think I grasped a lot of what he was saying. Yeah, I, I think that's why I like uh, repetition so much. I love repetition because that seems to be a way that I learn. And that seems to be the way that helps deepen it into from um, a mind conclusion down to actually a life conclusion or inclusion would be a better way to put it. And I really liked what he said about the Eastern religion because that's one of the things that um, I didn't want to do is go... Crawl back into the womb, which was my perception of uh, what the Eastern religions were trying, actually trying to do, and their Western counterparts of Ekankar and Master Path and things like that. Um, when I, after I experienced that for a while, I realized that it really is this and that. Is applying it into my life in a practical life-affirming way that's challenging
1: at times
0: often (laughs) and sometimes easy and maybe that's what you're talking about our spiritual growth process some things we learn easier than others
2: well you know there is the idea through a lot of these deep spiritual teachings that um michael rice summarizes as um willingness is the cosmic grease right so the idea is some people say oh you know um we can go through life without any pain we just have to you know tap into the bliss state like that's the kind of thing that uh michael singer points towards but the the critical piece there is he's not saying you just you know You go through life with no intense emotions that you would label negative. It's just that you go through life and these emotions that you used to label negative, you relabel them as the flow of life and you learn to appreciate them and and enjoy them in a different way. Even though you wouldn't choose any of them individually, you recognize that they all fit in this flow of life just like if you sit and watch a symphony you may not choose every note that every instrument plays but you can appreciate how they all fit together in in a musical piece that has you know uh, what they would call a gestalt right a wholeness that is better or different than any of the individual pieces
0: And that's like I said last night in the support group, that uh, when I stumbled across the Aramaic Gospel and the meanings and differences in meanings, I realized, oh, the Middle East, I love it. So I feel very at home with uh, that inclusive sort of what I see as inclusive approach to both heaven and earth, the here and now, and the eternal, um, the eternal within the here and now, which is messed, whatever that is, matter, energy, space and time that we see ourselves in. Um, I just really appreciate each one of us.
2: all right well i appreciate the call the comments i'm glad you're enjoying this process and i look forward to uh, the next time you call and share i will meet you so you can listen to our second hour blessings and i will remind us all that we come from love we're made of this stuff we call love we actually are love and everything else is false and i will welcome genie rice And turn welcome. on her microphone.
1: Oh. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Yeah, I was trying to get my headset to work, and for some reason it's not wanting to, but thank you. I well, appreciate if you, you weren't on, I Hope was just going to hang weekend. up
2: and call back in and, and let Michael come in. But now that you're here, I'll just say have a wonderful show, and have a good thank weekend you. yourself. Blessings. Thanks.
1: Appreciate you. Bye. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio, and today is Friday. And it is June the 23rd, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1. And that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And uh, I'm going to try once more to get my headset to work because it's challenging to hold the phone. There we go. Let's try that. I'm not sure if you can hear me through the microphone or not. Okay, good. All right. Uh, Michael says he can hear me. So Uh, we welcome you to the show. If you go to the website, we don't have all of the information up there yet. However, if you go to schedules or events, either one, you will find the information for the upcoming Intuitive Development Intensive. So if you're interested in participating in that, please get in touch with uh, Michael or myself. And my email is jeanie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And before I start reading, one of the things that I thought of yesterday uh, we were talking about um, words and, and the things we say and habits that we get into and I am so thankful, you know, we've taught Aria to say, cancel that thought. And I am—I have such gratitude that she got it. And, you know, in her innocence, I mean, she understood it. And she is awesome to stay on top of it and remind us if we say something that uh, is not of the uh, best speech or wording of, of what we're thinking, She'll look at us and she'll say, cancel that thought, Nene. cancel that thought, Papa. And she does the same thing with her mom and dad. And, and uh, so it's just awesome that she really grasped that idea. So we're reading out of The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, and we're in the chapter called Let Go Now or Fall. And what it was talking about yesterday was basically holding, you know, if you're holding on to fear, thinking that it protects you, because of the Law of Resonance, you're going to draw people or situations in to bring up that fear to give you the opportunity to heal it. And so we can either let go now or it will, you know, kick us in the limitations. So we'll continue to read, if you truly want to grow spiritually, you'll realize that keeping your stuff is keeping you trapped. And when it says keeping your stuff, it's you know, the the hostility or the fear or, you know, whatever um, disintegrative energy that you're hanging on to, that's your stuff. And you'll soon realize that keeping it is actually trapping you. Eventually, you'll want out at any cost. You will then realize that life is actually trying to help you. Life is surrounding you with people and situations that will stimulate growth. In other words, it will trigger you. You don't have to decide who's right or wrong. You don't have to worry about other people's issues. You only have to be willing to open your heart in the face of anything and everything and permit the purification process to take place. When you do this, the first thing you'll see is that situations will unfold that hit your stuff. But in truth, that's exactly what has been happening your entire life. The only difference is now you see it as a good thing because it's an opportunity to let go. The stuff that holds you down periodically rears its head. And when it does, let it go. You simply permit the pain to come up into your heart and pass through. If you do that, it will pass. If you are sincerely seeking truth, you'll let go every time. And that he's talking there, basically, um, forgiveness. He's not calling it that, but that's what this is. This is the beginning and the end of the entire path. You surrender yourself to the process of emptying yourself. When you work with this, you start to learn the subtler laws of the process of letting go. There is a law that you will learn very early in the game because it's an unavoidable truth. You will learn it early but you will fall many times while trying to adhere to it. The law is very straightforward. When your stuff gets hit, let go right then because it will be harder later. It will be easier if you explore it or play with it, hoping to take the edge off. It won't be easier to think about it, talk about it, or try to release only part of it at a time. If you want to be free to the core of your being, You must let go right away because it will not be easier later. In order to live by this law, you have to understand its principles. First, you must be aware that there is something within you that needs to be released. You must then be aware that you, the one who notices the stuff coming up, are distinct from what you're experiencing. And that's what we talk about being the actor apart from the action, to be the observer. You are noticing it. But who are you? This place of centered awareness is the seat of the witness, the seat of self, and that's with a capital S. That is the only seat from which you can let go. Let's say you notice that something in your heart gets hit. If you let go and stay in the seat of awareness, what you are noticing will pass. If you don't let go and instead get lost in the disturbed feelings and thoughts that arise, you'll see a sequence of events unfold so quickly you won't know why hit you. If you don't let go, you'll notice that the energy that got stimulated in your heart works like a magnet. It's a phenomenally attractive force that will pull your consciousness into it. The next thing you know, you won't be there you won't maintain the same perspective of awareness that you had when you first noticed the disturbance. You will leave the seat of objective awareness from which you saw your heart begin to react and you will get involved in the shifting energies coming from your heart. Sometime later, you'll come back and realize you weren't there. You'll come back and realize that you were totally lost in your stuff. And then you will hope that you didn't say or do something that you will regret. You'll look at the clock. Five minutes will have gone by, or an hour, or even a year. You can lose your clarity for quite some time. Where did you go? How did you come back? We will address these questions shortly, but what really matters is that when you're seeing clearly, you're not going anywhere. You're simply sitting in the seat of centered awareness, watching your stuff get hit. As long as you're watching, you're not getting lost in it. The key is to understand that if you don't let go immediately, the disturbing force of the activated energy draws the focus of your consciousness. As your consciousness gets immersed in the disturbance, you lose your clear seat of self. It happens instantaneously. There's no feeling of going anywhere any more than there is when you leave the room by getting absorbed in a book or a TV show. You simply lose the fixed point of consciousness from which you were objectively aware of your surroundings. Your consciousness leaves the centered position of witnessing the many energies around you, and you get sucked into focusing on just one of them. This leaving the seat of self is not generally a willful act. The laws of attraction will cause it to happen, Consciousness is always drawn to the most distracting object, the bumped toe, the loud noise, or the hurting heart. It's the same law inside and out. The consciousness goes to the place that distracts it the most. That's what we mean when we say, it's so loud it caught my attention. It drew your consciousness to it. When a blockage gets hit, the same attraction takes place. The consciousness gets pulled to the source of discomfort. That place then becomes your seat of consciousness. After the discomfort settles down and lets you go, you'll naturally drift back toward your higher seat of awareness. This is where you sit when you're not distracted by disturbance. But as important as this higher self-seat is, it's equally important to see what happens when you are distracted by disturbance. Your seat of consciousness falls down to where the disturbance is happening. And the whole book, the whole world looks different. Let's analyze this fall step by step. I'll stop there first and see if Michael wants to say anything to that point.
3: No, let's just rock on,
1: and you know my headset's not working as far as me hearing, so I'm glad you can hear me when I'm talking.
3: Oh
2: okay turn
1: on my. <laughs> Michael, are you there? I am not hearing you. I'm here. I don't know if it's... So did you want to comment on what I read up to that point? No,
3: no, I I said rock on.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So let's analyze this file step by step. It begins when you get pulled down into, into the disturbed energy. You end up exactly where you don't belong. The last place you want to put your consciousness is down there. But that's where it will get pulled. Now as you look out through your disturbed energy, everything is distorted by the haze of your disturbance. Things that look beautiful now look ugly. Things you liked now look dark and depressing. But nothing has really changed. It's just that you're looking at life from the seat of disturbance. Each of these shifts in your perception should remind you to let go. The moment you start seeing that you don't like the people you used to like, the moment you start seeing that your life looks really different, the moment it all starts getting negative, let go. You should have let go before, but you didn't. The trouble is that it's more difficult now. You could have taken one breath and let go when it started. Now it takes some serious work to get your previous get to your to get your previous seat of consciousness back without going through the whole cycle. The cycle is the time that it takes from the moment you leave your seat of relative clarity until you come back. This period of time is determined by the depth of the energy blockage that calls the internal or the initial disturbance. Once activated, the blockage must run its course. If you don't let go, you get sucked in. You are no longer free, you are caught. Once you fall from your seat of relative clarity, you are under the mercy of the disturbed energy. If that blockage is stimulated by an ongoing situation, you must stay down there for a long time. If it happens to be just a passing event, The energy released by the blockage dissipates immediately, and then you'll find that you drift back up quickly. The main point is that it's not under your control. You lost it. This is the anatomy of falling. When you're in this state of disturbance, your tendency will be to act in order to try to fix things. You don't have the clarity to see what's going on. You just want the disturbance to stop. So you start getting down to your survival instincts. You may feel that you have to do something drastic. You may want to leave your husband or wife or move or quit a job. The mind starts saying all kinds of things because it doesn't like this space and it wants to get away from it any way that it can. Now that you've fallen to that point, here comes the cream d'illagram. Imagine that While you're lost in the disturbed energy, you actually do one or more of the things that your mind is telling you to do. Imagine what would happen if you actually quit your job or if you decide, I've held this in long enough. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You have no idea how big a step-down that is. It's one thing if the disturbance is going on inside of you, but the moment that you allow it to express itself... The moment that you let that energy move your body, you have descended to another level. Now it's almost impossible to let go. If you start yelling at somebody, if you actually tell someone how you feel about them from this state of non-clarity, you have involved that person's heart and mind in your stuff. And now both of your egos are involved. Once you externalize these energies, you will want to defend your actions and make them look appropriate but the other person will never think that they were appropriate. Now, even more forces are keeping you down. First, you fall into the darkness, and then you manifest that darkness. When you do this, you are literally taking the energy of the blockage and passing it on. When you dump your stuff into the world, it's like painting the world with your stuff. You put more of that kind of energy into your environment, and it comes back to you. You are now surrounded by people who will interact with you accordingly. It's just another form of environmental pollution, and it will affect your life. That's how negative cycles happen. You actually take a piece of your stuff, which is nothing but deeply-seated disturbance from your past, and you implant it in the hearts of those around you. At some point, it will come back to you. Anything you put out comes back. Imagine if you got upset and fully released your disturbed energies onto another person. This is how people ruin relationships and destroy their lives. How far down can you go? Once you're weakened, another blockage could get hit, and yet another, and you can fall all the way down until your life is an absolute mess. You can reach a point of total loss of control and completely lose your center. In this state, your previous seat of clarity may drift by once in a while, but you can't hold it. Now you're lost. Do you doubt that a single blockage getting hit in your heart could cause a a fall that lasts a lifetime? It has been known to happen. What if all you had to do to avoid all of this was to let go in the beginning? If you had, you would have gone up instead of down that's how it works when a blockage gets hit it's a good thing it's time to open up internally and release that blocked energy if you let go and permit the purification process to take place inside that blocked energy will be released and when it's released and allowed to flow up it becomes purified and merges back into your center of consciousness This energy then strengthens you instead of weakens you. You begin to go up and up, higher and higher, and you learn the secret of the ascent. The secret of the ascent is to never look down, always look up. No matter what happens below you, turn your eyes upward and relax your heart. You do not have to leave the seat of self in order to deal with the darkness. It will purify itself if you let it. Getting involved in the darkness does not dispel the darkness. It feeds it. Don't even turn toward it. If you see disturbed energies within you, it's okay. Don't think you don't have blockages left to release. Just sit in the seat of awareness. Never leave. No matter what goes on below you, open your heart and let it go. Your heart will become purified and you will never know another fall. If you fall along the way, Just get up and forget it. Use the lesson to strengthen your resolve. Let go right then. Do not rationalize, blame, or try to figure it out. Don't do anything. Just let go immediately and allow the energy to go back to the highest center of consciousness it can achieve. If you feel shame, let it go. If you feel fear, let it go. All of these are remnants of the blocked energy that is finally being purified. Always let go as soon as you're aware that you didn't. Don't waste your time. Use the energy to go up. You are a great being who has been given a tremendous opportunity to explore beyond yourself. The whole process is very exciting, and you will have good times and bad times. All sorts of things will happen. That's the fun of the journey. So don't fall. Let go. No matter what it is, let it go. The bigger it is, the higher the reward of letting go, and the worse the fall if you don't. It's pretty black and white. You either let go or you don't. There really isn't anything in between. So let all of your blockages and disturbance become the fuel for the journey. That which is holding you down can become a powerful force that raises you up. You just have to be willing to take the ascent. And that's the end of that chapter
3: that says it really well you have to be willing to take the ascent so right on i i just wrote to uh to yinka for those that aren't aware yinka runs the uh, hear my voice book club out of london england and yesterday we did a worksheet on the hear my voice book club and it was really a, a powerful it's actually about a two-hour worksheet and uh, I just wrote to her to see if we've got the link yet, and if not, you know, we'll get it as soon as possible and get it put on our uh, our uh, YouTube page for anybody that would like to watch it. And what was powerful about it, and this whole reading that Jeannie just did kind of keyed me into it, what was powerful about it was the... Um, the fact of the situation that the woman who volunteered to do the work she was in was a major external thing that in her mind was such a disturbance that i mean it was it was almost like this is the end of my happiness because of this external thing that happened. And as we went through the worksheet, she confronted many things that just are are reflected in what Michael wrote here. And there's a, a really powerful passage in A Course in Miracles that, for me, fits with this session that Janie just read from Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul. And what this passage says is, there is another way of looking at the world. You've made many ideas that you've placed between yourself, and I'm going to edit this just slightly from the Course, you've made many ideas that you've placed between yourself and your experience of yourself as love. And these beliefs are the world as you perceive it. Truth is not absent here, but it is obscure. And how this all ties together for me and and becomes, I think, an important lesson as each of us advances in the uh, practice of forgiveness was there were a couple of very distinct points in the worksheet where, one, you could see this woman as she drop down into her pain as she allowed herself to really experience the trauma that was happening for her the trauma that she thought was caused by something happening in her world something outside of her something external to her a circumstance a situation and Her thinking was that this was, you know, like just tragic. And yet, on a couple of occasions, I mean, at at one point she went into major healing crisis, which reflected in her face. I I brought up to her the, the reflection that I saw, the shift that happened in her. And so there's a visual component to this particular worksheet, if you choose to watch it. And you could see the energy in her face changing and becoming traumatic. And then there came a point where she moved to a thought that for her was delightful. Now, nothing in the circumstance in the external world had changed. All she did was change a thought. And literally, she moved from this trauma-based face to just, I mean, beaming joy and aliveness and delight. I mean, like extreme. And it reminded me of this passage from the Course. No matter what, is happening in your world, you know, if you, if you were brought into the world, as most people are, you were brought into a, a culture with a family system, and by about the age of four, you likely, as most all of us did, became a caring member of the One World Universal Church of Blaine, and that the reason there was disturbance in you was not your own thoughts, but rather a circumstance in the world. And that you gave up the ability to tap into truth because the belief, the thought structure was based in a belief that something outside of you was the cause of something moving inside of you. And remember that we call that denial. That's our definition of denial. Whenever I think or speak, as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me, I'm in denial. When I'm in denial, I have to dissociate from the real cause of what's going on, I have to hide it from myself, and I have to hide myself from myself. And so it seems as though in the lie of the mind, those thoughts as this passage speaks of, again it says, you've made many ideas that you place between yourself and your experience of yourself as love. And these beliefs are the world as you perceive it. Truth is not absent here, but is only obscured. What has it been obscured by? It's been obscured by the lie that comes from this game of denial. Denial leading to dissociation. If I believe that a, a, a lie that something outside of me is the cause of my pain, I can't be in touch with me as the presence of love in the presence of that thinking. I mean, the truth is still there. I'm still there. I could at any instant tap into the truth of who I am and beam as the presence of love throughout my whole physiology at any instant. But I've obscured the truth of who I am by these lies, by this fraud. And then any moment that I choose, and I don't know whether, I haven't read Michael's book. You know, he did the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop about, I'm not even sure now, probably 30 years ago. He has a center in the Gainesville area in Florida, and I had been invited to speak there and presented the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop. But I don't know that he mentions or talks about forgiveness as such. He has many approaches to, you know, getting free from the beliefs of the mind, from the mind itself, from the thought, you know, essentially from the thought disorders. But for me, the technology that Yeshua brings to the table that's missing in the whole Eastern philosophical world is that there is a way, that you can consistently and persistently weaken the energy of the lies of the mind. Or, as this particular phrase says from the Course, the many ideas you place between yourself and your experience of yourself as love. And those ideas, those thought disorders tend to be generational. They tend to be forced on us by power persons when they're in trauma, not out of volition, but out of trauma that was passed on to them generation by generation by generation by generation. The thought comes, and I've spoken about Jeannie and I have both spoken about this experience before, but one day Jeannie and I were in a grocery store, there was a woman in front of us who had a little boy, probably two and a half or three, in her cart and the little boy wanted some grapes that were in the cart and a big screaming match ensued. I went out to get the car. Jeanie was checking out so I went out to get the car and pull it up in front of the store the woman that uh, was in front of us pulled off to the side. Well, I was I headed out the car and Jeannie checked out. So Jeannie was standing at the front door when this woman was heading out to her car. And she heard this little boy, three or under, like, and, and it's mind-boggling. Why should a child of three even be able to conceive of such a thought except that it's a generational pattern but what she heard and she was it touched her pretty deeply she she heard this and then got in the car and was almost in tears and actually if you, maybe if you choose to share anything about what was going on for you instantly called her son uh, as a result of that experience but this little boy is in a cart your mother's wheeling you out and what Jeannie hears is, and I'm, I'm tying this into this thought of what thoughts do we in, put in place, put between us and the experience of ourselves as love. And this little guy is saying to his mother as they, you know, she pushes him out of the cart, I love you, Mom. Please don't beat me. Now, there is a thought disorder that is probably going to plague this boy at the age of 5, at the age of 7, at the age of 10, 15, 18, first love, female, woman, mom, power, person, trauma? What, what kinds of things come between him as experiencing himself as the presence of love that he thinks he has to, you know, Tell somebody I love you in order to avoid being beaten. If there's ever a moment when any one of us is in a moment of trauma, what thought have we put between ourselves and the experience of ourselves as love? in order to avoid the experience of ourselves as love? What kind of mind energy is held in mind that the mind generates this whole reality, this whole structure called perception based in trauma that separates us from the truth of who we are? And to me, the the last sentence in this particular passage is so important and such an inspiration because if you're lost in the trauma you know the child who and who knows how many you know i can only assume it would be reasonable to assume i think that this child has been beaten by mom that he would say i love you please don't beat me and will very likely be beaten again and maybe again and again and again and who knows i mean Some of the stories I've heard would curl your hair about what mothers have done to sons or daughters, and fathers have done to sons or daughters or each other. How many times does that sort of thing get reinforced? And so here someone stands, the mind taking that unresolved pain and putting it into its brain's image of whatever's going on in the world. For the woman we did this worksheet with, it was the situation that she was living in that separated her from the truth of who she was. And, And to remember that whatever the trauma is that the mind is serving up, whatever the beliefs are that you put between you yourself and the experience of yourself as love, the truth of you as love is still present, even if it's obscured. And there's only one way that I know of. And, you know, I've looked everywhere through everything for better than a half a century now. How do you weaken the lies of the mind that obscure the truth that is eternally present in your life? And that is that you are made in the image and likeness of love, your nature is love, and the experience of yourself as love can never be destroyed. Made obscure? Yes. Made obscure by beliefs? Yes. And made obscure by experiences? Yes. That resonate those beliefs. But that forgiveness, that first century Aramaic technology is available so that whatever the story you've told yourself, whatever the lie you've told yourself about how that is the cause of this me not experiencing myself as love, the reason why I'm in pain instead of the bliss and joy of being a created human being, that what forgiveness does is it if used consistently and persistently, it weakens the energetic patterns that in some cases are so deeply embedded, have been going on for so many generations that it seems impossible that anything other than bear to blame for what's going on inside of me could possibly be true. They are the reason I'm not experiencing myself as love, as a human being. And there is no one that can stop you from experiencing yourself as who you are. No one. But if you've got a thousand generations of little boys or little girls who said things to their mothers or their fathers or their sisters or their brothers or their lovers or their friends or their enemies... I love you, please don't beat me. The work of forgiveness, consistently, persistently applied, will weaken that so that the breakthrough to the full experience, the full active presence of yourself as love, becomes more and more easily available. And when you have that monumental moment where that opening occurs and you experience yourself as that, everything else is a joke. Every pain, every trauma, everything the ego tries to offer is silliness. Now, in that moment, it's silliness. Not in the moment where you're stuck in the ego self, in the those, those thought disorders that have been put between yourself and the truth of who you are. And the structure of the non-being mind, the structure of the non-being self has been going on for so long and is so huge has to be an almost impossible task to achieve its experience. When Yeshua talked about it, he said, the way is narrow. Few are those who will find it. They talked about the way to perdition, the way to hostility, fear, blame. It's all somebody else's fault. The way to just living in that world. Man, that's a wide open gateway. The whole world's doing it. It is the state of the world. It is the one world religion, universal religion of blame. pathway to so weakening those frequencies of the mind that you can disconnect from them totally and be in the experience of yourself as the human presence of love. is a gift that one tastes, at least initially, rarely in doing their work. Once you have that taste, it will always be there as a beacon. You'll never be able to so sincerely fool yourself again that what's going on for you is somebody else's fault. Oh, yes, your mind will come up and give you all those foolish ideas and you'll fall into them. I I fall into them. I'm, I'm not talking about anybody but myself here. For all of us, we were all stuck in the same game. But those moments where you fully, completely experience yourself as the presence of love and then move forward with that experience until it becomes your norm. You know, there's a statement in the scriptures that talks about, as I become less, he becomes more. And, you know, that's all been twisted to be about this man named Yeshua. But what's being spoken of there is as these false ideas that we place between ourselves as love and the perceptual mind, as those false ideas become less... I'm able to step more and more into this experience of myself as my created essence love and bring that back to my mind and bring that back to my mind and bring that back to my mind with full awareness and full knowledge. That's the work. And the progress is that you, the, the way that you can tell you're making progress is you'll have those moments where you taste that full-blown experience. And then the next time you get trapped in your mind and you're in the middle of your muddle You'll be able to stop and take a breath. You may not be able to fully disconnect from the muddle that's going on that needs to be processed through, that needs to be forgiven. But you'll be able to take a breath and remember what it was like and remember the truth that you are the full-blown presence of love and that's what you're designed to experience. And yes, there's still a mind structure in you one that's a thousand generations old that says, "No, come, be with this trauma, come be with this blame. we've got a thought to place between your you as the presence of love. We've got a thought to place between you as that experience and the world, and here it is: they did it to you. It's their fault." You're not worthy, you'll... Oh, the thousand thought disorders that go that Michael's so beautifully describing here. And how deeply urgent to the experience of yourself as love is both forgiveness and the breath. Because as this passage from the Course says, truth is not absent here. Just obscured. So the question becomes, are you interested in looking at the world another way? And if you get the chance to watch this video, and we don't have it yet, as soon as we've got it, it'll be on our YouTube channel, and it'll be yesterday's date for the Hear My Voice book club. And just be aware as you watch it, and watch this woman as she describes her trauma and her upset, and it's just an all-consuming disturbance. And then watch the moment where she taps into, she changes her thinking and goes from depressed and burdened and traumatized in her looks to where her continent shifts to just full-blown light. The only thing that changed was a thought. Truth, the truth of who you are as love, is always available to you. And if there are thought disorders you've used to obscure it, It's time to forgive those thought disorders. And that's the essence of this work. That's what we're here to do. And the thought can be a thought about, oh, I have a fear for, you know, my mother, my father, someplace in the world, something. That's a thought disorder that prohibits you from experiencing yourself as love. Forgive it. It might be the thought of blame. It might be how terrible somebody is, the terrible things that have been done. And yes, there are many, many terrible things that have been done. But you can stand as love and be aware of those terrible things and bring your being, love, to those terrible things and therefore facilitate the healing of those things. Because the bottom line of healing... And for me, this goes back, I'm not even sure how many years, 30-some years ago, we are doing an intensive at Heartland. And I don't know, we had 40 or 50 people in the room. And one person was in a major trauma. And we did some significant work with that person, and all of a sudden they just went to this, very much like happened yesterday in the uh, in the worksheet I was describing, they just went to this place of total connectedness to love and bliss from really horrific trauma. I don't even remember at this moment what the trauma was about, but went from that trauma to just totally blissed and connected. And And what... I, you know, I'm, I'm in the process at this point of learning, as I still am, but at that point, some fairly primitive learning about healing. And I watched this person make this shift, and there are, you know, 40 rather 50 other people in the room, and they're all still in the same state. And, and this person makes such a dramatic shift, it's like, what happened? What, why did that happen? What, how come that happened to them? And, and everybody else didn't make the same shift. I'm trying to understand what's what's the bottom line of this healing process. And what I was shown is that in order for healing to occur, two things have to happen. And again, it's all explained in this one little sentence that I've read from the course. There is another way of looking at the world, and what is it? What I was shown is that two things had to occur for healing to happen. The truth of who you are as love has to show up. And I'm not talking about the world's definitions of love as sexual athletics or you know, putting your head on a chopping block so somebody else can take advantage of you and call that love, or I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the fact of you or I as a human being, as active, present love, coming into full expression and experience in this moment. That's one practice. That's one thing that has to happen. And then the other piece is that one of those ideas you've placed between yourself and your experience of yourself as love has to come to the surface. The root of it, the hidden part of it, has to come to the surface. Let's say for this young man who I spoke about who was three and said, Mom, I love you. Please don't beat me. He's conning his mom in order not to be beaten. You know, maybe he's 50 years of age and he's in the trauma of that. He has no idea why his underlying life is one of depression and rage and grief and pain. He has no idea why it's there, what's going on. He's never looked back on that experience of the child of three and the thousand other experiences that reinforced it and the thousand generations that went before it of abuse. But he comes to a moment where he applies forgiveness he brings himself into the awareness of himself as active, present love. He cancels the goal that's driving his perception to use that experience of the child of three that's terrified of being beaten again. He cancels the goal in his, fift- his mind that's 50 years of age in that moment. And his perception based in that underlying unconscious hidden pain of the three-year-old collapses. And this is the genius of Yeshua's forgiveness. By canceling a goal, that current moment pained perception collapses in on itself and it gives you access to the underlying root of the trauma. There's nothing else I know of that can do that for you. Yeah, you might accidentally fall across it and, and have a healing experience. There's nothing else I know of that will collapse that whole structure of the mind based in that child of three and their pain and their need to con mom so that they don't get beaten again. This guy's 50. He cancels the goal. Of that whole moment of pain perception that seems to be about something going on in his life today collapses in on itself, and all of a sudden he takes a breath. And he's back in the memory of sitting in that cart. And the core terror of being beaten surfaces in the presence of active love. Whether it's his active love or whether it's yours, you may be the one holding the space. In the ancient teachings, touching into that active presence of love was called, in in one particular case we're aware of, where a woman who has this 12-year issue of blood says, I just know if I can touch the hem of his garment. She's doing her work. She's ready to process whatever this underlying stuff is. And she knows if she can touch into the active presence of love that Yeshua is so practiced at healing that she will heal. And her willingness to allow that underlying trauma to come forward instantly removes from her physiology, instantly changes her physiology, so that an extremely traumatic experience of a 12-year period disappears in an instant. Why is that such a trauma? Well, aside, of course, I'm not a woman, but I can imagine I can only think I can imagine the inconvenience of that, but beyond that, here's a woman that is, is not even allowed, under the, the rule of the day, not even allowed to go into her own kitchen to prepare food for her family, so she's like, you know, she's a person non grata. And this man holds the space of active love. You could be that man who holds, or that woman that holds the space of active love, and someone touches the hem of your garment, and because they're ready to collapse their perception at the moment based in maybe a 10-generational trauma, bang, up it comes. and the presence of your love shines a light that transmutes that experience, and that person's freed of that idea that they'd placed between themselves as love and the experience of the moment. There's skills to be acquired. There's a work to be done. I don't care what it is that you need to heal. Whatever your mind's telling you that's based in pain and the, pain, the cause of the pain is out there, your mind is a liar. It's telling you a lie. Total, complete fraud. It is telling you a lie. Perception is a lie meant to block you from experiencing yourself as love. Collapse that lie in the presence of active love, your own or someone else's, and the lie and all of its effects will disappear. Yeshua taught of a power that resided in each of us that in Aramaic was called de kadusha, a feminine elemental force that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. What ideas if you're in pain, if you're in trauma at any given moment, what ideas do you need to allow to come from up from your unconscious? in the place of of active present love in order to be freed of that construct so that the truth of you as the presence of love that was there but obscured all of a sudden becomes a present moment experience. The Course refers to that and says there is no place so holy upon the earth as the place where an ancient hatred becomes a present love. Do you suppose our little boy that had that experience at the door of that grocery store when he was three and now he's 50, do you suppose all the expressions of that trauma that played out from his unconscious, played out in his childhood experiences, in his dating experiences, in his marriage or marriages, in his job, in his spiritual... Do you suppose the moment where that ancient hatred is transformed by a present love, Is something that's just going to happen if he doesn't choose to do the work of developing the skills? That like someday it's just going to kind of accidentally out of the blue happen? Or do you suppose it's going to take a conscious, consistent, persistent effort? I will offer it is the conscious, consistent, persistent effort, and in particular, the application of the tool of forgiveness. If you're not using that tool, go to your App Store on your phone, type in the words Heartland, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, one word, Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C, forgiveness, You'll be looking at the World's Only Forgiveness app, download it on your phone, put it to work. It's specifically designed to be a totally, completely private app. It's so private that we only ask for one permission. We purposely designed it that way, knowing that people would have very tender, private, traumatic things to share with the app. So we specifically designed it. You know, when the developer was doing the work on it, the question was asked, well, you want to be able to access this? No, because all you need are these permissions, and you'll be able to look at that. No, we don't want that. We want this private. So one permission is asked, and one permission is only in the app. It was specifically designed so it would be private for each person that uses it, and that permission is simply have to be able to use the Internet in order for the app to work. Once you've done the forgiveness work with the app, it will ask one more permission if you choose to keep your worksheet, to print it. In order to print it, it's got to save it somewhere. So there'll be a a question asked is, you know, permission to save it to your drive. But that will only be for you. That will only be for you. There are no other permissions. We're, we're not interested in using your dialer or making phone calls or changing settings or sending texts or reading anything. <laughs> we're interested in privacy. Go to your website, or your your pardon me, your App Store, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. Download the app and start to use it. And as you develop the brain cells, there will be questions. Probably many questions. You know, I I worked purposely consciously on this worksheet for 30-plus years before I really came to understand it and and can really fully explain it. So, yes, there will probably be many questions. There's a spot in the app, Jeannie, put in there that any time you have a question, the most subtle or the the biggest question, just any page in the app, you can push a button and ask your question and send it to us. Jeannie will read it on the radio show. We'll answer it and send you back a link. Here's where the answer is to your question. So use the app and or you can go to the website, whyagain.org. In the upper left-hand corner of the website, click Start Here. And that will walk you right through everything we know about it. And it will become... I won't say an easy thing. An easier thing to do, to move from looking at the world through the lens, you know, Paul's talked about, we see as though through a glass darkly, to look through the mind perception darkly through the past traumas and fears, the generational patterns that obscure the presence of yourself, the awareness of yourself as love. And the truth of who you are as love will show up more and more and more in your life. And that's our objective here. The single purpose of this work. And we're honored and delighted that you're here with us to share this space. I sincerely hope you have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. The world is in desperate need of it. And you have the power to give it. Thanks for joining us in blessings. To
1: more consciously, evolving continuously. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the First Century Aramaic Internal Process of Forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on MindShifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic Forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.